0: 9 is where we're at this evening, Acts chapter 9, and when I started going through the book of Acts, I was really looking forward to getting to Acts chapter 9. This is my favorite place in the the book of Acts. This is when Saul, later we will know as Paul, gets saved in Acts 9. We'll read a few verses here in a minute, but Christianity is a religion of conversion, should in fact Uh, it is the pure religion. I mean, it's not religion as we know it today, but it's a, a Christianity is all about conversion. Everything that you believe is built on one fundamental premise. You don't have to stay the way that you are. You don't have to stay the way you were before you got saved. I've heard that uh, people, once in a while, you talk to them about a certain issue they might have, whether it's temper or or even alcoholism, well, that's just the way I am. God never called us to be the way we am. He called us to be the way He is, amen? And so we, aren't, we, we, we don't have to stay the way that we are. Your life can be radically changed by God. Salvation is a miracle, and that happens when life, uh, the life of God intersects with human personality. Once God enters the picture, your life will never be the same again. Until then, you may be very religious. You may have been a very good person. You may obey all the rules of the church. But until you are converted, uh, then nothing is really changed. You can change your behavior, but you can't change your person. Religion is one thing. Salvation is something else entirely. This means that long-held prejudices can be overcome. Lifetime habits can be broken. Deeply ingrained sin uh, patterns in our life that can be erased over time. Sometimes it takes a little time for God to do that work. But He changes us. Salvation is that certainty in our hearts that what you were does not determine what you are. And it also uh, determines that what you are or does not determine what you will be. Because you can be changed through the power of God. You can be different. Your life can move in a new direction. One of the greatest things about Christianity is that it works and uh, that, that God can do that work in your life. All right? It's like owning a Jeep, Brother Larry. It's one of the greatest things about driving. It works. You know, it just gets you there. And, uh, and so that's one reason that we like those things. It doesn't matter the nicest Ferrari you have in the world if it doesn't start. Amen? Doesn't do it for you? Uh, the Word of God... Works. All right, let's look. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? We're going to stop there for a minute because we're going to break this up probably in several lessons because this is a wonderful, amazing story of Saul's conversion. I'm going to look at tonight, beginning in this lesson, about God doing the impossible. God does the impossible. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look at this story for the next few minutes and see firsthand what you can do when you intervene in human Conditions. We pray that you bless us now in Jesus' name, Amen. I think of all the conversion stories in the Bible, there's none greater than the man we're looking at this evening. He was a religious zealot. Uh, Saul was a uh, he was he's one of the greatest minds of the first century. He's unbelievably brilliant. He is highly educated. He is credentialed. He's a dual citizen. He was a zealous Jew and he was a Roman citizen. It's interesting that Paul. Uh, a man with Jewish and Gentile relationships, a Jew by birth, a Gentile by citizenship, would become the, gen, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. I think that's interesting how God worked that out. Uh, he's incredibly well connected. He's a religious superstar. He loves God, but he hates followers of Jesus. He thought he loved God, but he hates followers of Jesus. He saw him as a charlatan, Saul was a murderer. Uh, Saul was like Osama bin Laden with a PhD. He was a brilliant man, but a, a, a really a wicked and harsh man as well. Saul's face would have been on all the anti-Christian posters of the day, the social media of that day. Saul would have been the talking head on GNN. That's Galilee News Network. Uh, I don't know if it was fake news or not, but it could have been. Uh, encouraging people to report the Jesus followers and, and those that call themselves Christians so they could be prosecuted. He would have set up spy networks. If you see something, say something. So that he could try to round up the Christians. He was a bloodthirsty Christian exterminator. He would throw you in prison and think he was doing God a favor. He was raised a Jew. He was trained as a rabbi. He hated Jesus and his followers. He became a violent persecutor of the early church. He did all that he could to eradicate and get rid of this new religion as if it were some kind of dreaded, I don't know, virus. (laughs) He uh, tried to do everything he could to shut it down. He was a terrorist who did his evil deeds in the name of God and the Bible. Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man. He talks about his religious achievements and if you'll turn there, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. I think it behooves us to look at this just as he lays out his credentials. Because he was confident and he had every right to be confident in his religion as he saw it. Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 4. The Bible says that I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath wherewith of. He, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So basically he's saying if anybody could trust in their flesh, nobody could do it more than me. He tells you why. Uh, verse 5, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin in Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. Let's look at a few of them here. Paul's basically saying, I had more reason than anyone to know that I was on my way to heaven or to think that I was on my way to heaven, but we see these are things that did not justify him in the eyes of God. Religion never does, but let's break them down. We see that ritual did not save him. Circumcised the eighth day, he said. If ritual saved you, Paul would have been in good shape. Uh, He did procedurally everything that Moses prescribed. But ritual does not save you. It did not then and it does not now. We see relationships did not save him. Out of the stock of Israel, he said. He's a relative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If relationships saved, then Paul would have been saved. He had a great pedigree. But, what, but who you are does not save you. Who your parents are does not save you. Uh, these, uh, where you came from, none of these things save you. If you would ask somebody, if they are 100% sure of heaven, and they would ask, don't you know who I am? Doesn't matter, does it? Uh, I I like when I get, (laughs) I knocked on a door one time, and it was actually in Brookings here, and uh, somebody opened the door. I didn't know him from Adam's house cat, and so I started just introducing myself and saying that uh, who I am and where I'm from, and and, uh, she was a little bit perturbed. She says, I am the pastor's wife in such and such a... Methodist Church, and uh, and you know, didn't have much interest in talking. But the truth is, it doesn't matter, does it? Who we are, relationship doesn't save you. Respectability doesn't save you. Out of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Benjamin is the only brother who did not reject Joseph. He's the only tribe that stayed loyal to Judah. It was an honor to be a Benjamite, and Saul was a Benjamite. But respectability does not save. Others might eulogize you, but only Jesus can save you. So respectability didn't save him. Race did not save him. He says he was an Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul was a full-blooded Jew. If race saved a person, Paul would have been in the clear, but race does not save. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that saves, not the color of your skin or your heritage. So ritual did not save him. Relationships did not save him. Respectability did not save him. Race did not save him. Religion did not save him. As touching the law, a Pharisee, Paul was a Pharisee, which means he was a very religious person. He was a uh, person of a position. We think of a Pharisee today as a hypocrite. If somebody called you a Pharisee, you'd be offended, and rightly so, the way we look at it. But not in Paul's day. Man, to be a Pharisee was to be the elite, to be the most spiritual. People were in awe of you if you were a Pharisee. That did not save his soul, though. Reputation did not save him. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul had a great reputation among the Jews for his commitment, but this did not save him. Being sincere is not enough if you're sincerely wrong. So ritual did not save him. Relationships, respectability, race, religion, reputation, none of these things saved him. Righteousness did not save him. The righteousness, he says, which is in the law, blameless. As far as the law is concerned, Paul crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's. He did everything just right. But you know what Isaiah 64, 6 says? Our righteousness are as filthy rags. It's not going to save you. you. What you do cannot save you. What Jesus did can. So as much as is humanly possible, we can go back to Acts 9 now, but what, as much as is humanly possible, Saul said, I had all my bases covered. He loved the law. He studied the law. He obeyed the law. He lived the law. Saul believed that God would accept him and grant him salvation because he had earned it. The problem with Saul's thinking is that it was dead wrong. And many people today have the exact same idea. Just talking to a lady today uh, uh, about being a Christian. Oh, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't been a Christian your whole life. But I hear that more. It's interesting. I think it might be a Uh, I don't know if it's just because there's more Lutherans or whatever there is in this area, but I've heard that more since I've come to South Dakota than I ever did before, that I've been a Christian my whole lifeline. You can't have been a Christian. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus, who was super religious? He said, you must be, what? Born again. You must be born again. Now, I've been present, not by choice, but I've been present for eight births. I never want to be present for any more births in my life, and thankfully I probably won't have to be. I hope not. <laughs> but I've been present for eight births. It is a traumatic experience. It's, a, it's something that, uh, you know, they, they take the time down. They write it on a birth certificate. There's a time that you were born. Then they weigh you and they measure you. And, and uh, then you get the name and you get the social security number. It is a big event when a person is born. Well, Jesus said you must be born again. And guess what? Spiritually, it's an event when you get saved. There's a. You should be able to point that. That doesn't mean you need to know the date or the time. Uh, you know, some people have it down to what time of the day and what room they were. In. Actually, I can pretty much take you back. I was in my grandparents' spare bedroom upstairs, and and uh, and and they can take you to the date and all that. But you ought to remember. Uh, you, you ought to be able to go back to a time when you were born again. By the way, uh, you know I was born, right? because you can see evidence of it right here. We ought to be able to see evidence of your spiritual birth as well, amen? And uh, that's another message. But, but uh, we must be born again. Saul believed that God would accept him because of how he lived. Now, people today might claim that, but we have to correct that thinking. By the way, that's what I go to when I hear that. That's my go-to passage. And I explained that to him, the idea of being born again. That's a tr- tr- because what if I said, They say, how old are you? And I say, well, I've just always been. Well, you know that's not true. I had to be born at some point. Same way with Christian life. You can't always have been a Christian. Uh, There's a time when we're born again. Anyone basing their hope of heaven on doing good or doing the law is deceiving themselves because no one can keep the law. James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Well, we can keep a lot of laws. I have, I have kept one of the commandments my whole life. Commandment number six. I've kept that my whole life. Thou shalt not kill. To this point, I have not killed anyone. But there's a couple of the other laws I've violated. And, uh, you know, you, you, same thing can be said for you. And the Bible says when we offend in one area, we're guilty of the whole law. Religion, Listen to this statement, religion without redemption always produces resentment. And we get uh, bitter, we get angry, we get frustrated. This was the case in Saul's life. He heard the truth and he rejected it. He heard Stephen uh, and he rejected it. He refused to believe on Jesus and he became enraged with those who did. Because it wasn't enough, it's interesting to me today in our society, it's not enough for them just to reject our Savior, they have to hate Him. There's just a a hatred against him today. And this is where Saul was at. He worked hard to destroy the church. He worked as hard to destroy the church as he did at keeping the law. And it was all because he hated Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he did all he could to destroy it. Let's look at a couple of things he did. Uh, You don't have to look. I'll just recount them here for you. But Acts 7.58, he participated in the stoning of Stephen. Acts 8.1, he was consenting to Stephen's death, death. In other words, The original word literally means to be pleased with. It made him happy to be a part of Stephen's death. Acts 8.3, Saul made havoc of the church. Havoc means to ruin, to destroy, to devastate. Acts 8.3, Saul entered into private dwellings. He dragged believers into custody. Acts 9.1, Saul openly threatened believers. Acts 9.1, Saul murdered believers. Acts 9.1 and 2, he got warrants from Jewish authorities to authorize him to harass and arrest believers. Acts 26.10, he testified against believers and facilitated their murders. Acts 26.11, Saul forced believers to blaspheme the Lord who saved them. Think about that. By torture, no doubt. Forcing someone to blaspheme their Savior. All the while thinking he's pleasing God. All the while thinking he's doing God's work. Saul of Tarsus had faith. The problem is he had faith in his own self-righteousness. He had faith in the law. He had faith in his ability to keep it. And that's who we have when we come to Acts chapter 9. We see in verse 1 his persecution against the church. (coughs) Breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Now, I do maintain that Saul, in this time, was under conviction. I don't know why. It might have been because of Stephen's preaching. He just couldn't get it out of his mind. But Jesus referred to that when he talked about the pricks that, are, that Saul was kicking against. We're going to talk about that later. But, but uh, I do believe there's some conviction in his heart, but he's drowning it out with action. Saul was a very smart man. He was maybe a genius. He was smart enough to know that there could not be a peaceful coexistence between Judaism and Christianity. And that's a, by the way, that's a, that's a wise way of looking at it. Because religion and Christianity, they don't coexist. Has to be One has to be right or the other. We know his teacher, Gamaliel. Remember him? He advised moderation. Oh, just let him go and, and let him... If it's real, it'll keep going and you can't stop it anyway. If it's false, it'll die out. That's not always true, by the way. Jehovah's Witness is false and that died out. That's a, something that's taken root. But, but Gamaliel said, if, it'll, if it's false, it'll die away anyway. But Saul... He he saw the incompatibility between these two belief systems. You can't have Judaism, religion, the law, and Christianity. They're opposed to one another. Either Judaism was right and Christianity was apostasy. Or Christianity was right and Judaism was obsolete. One of the two were true. Saul just uh, was mistaken on which one he held to. But he held to the first, which meant Christ was a blasphemer. Christianity is a cult. He was right about this. You cannot mix the two. Saul's belief and his background all drove him into a head-on head confrontation with Christianity. Jesus is dead, so, so he thinks. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. There's nothing can do about him. Christianity, though, he's going to attack with all of his being. One reason Paul or Saul is so adamant is that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God and then was hung on a cross. It was uh, very well known. Jewish law says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We see that in Galatians 3.13. He used that, but that's a quotation of Deuteronomy 21.23. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus had been hanged on a tree, so obviously he was cursed by God, which means he could not be the Son of God. The only other possibility then is he's a liar, he's a blasphemer, and he's a deceiver. By the way, I know I've said it before, but it's a good reminder. We cannot in any way... I just heard somebody today, I was listening to a, uh, listening to a couple of people go back and forth talking about who Jesus was, and I and, uh, just heard somebody to say, they believe they, he was a good man, might have been a prophet, but he certainly wasn't perfect, he wasn't God. You cannot call Jesus just a good man. He can't be. Because of the claims he made. If, if, if Pastor Forsberg suddenly made the claims Jesus made, uh, he, he can't be a good man. He'd be a liar. He, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. I mean, we could go on down the line of all the things Jesus said. If Jesus was just a good man, he was a consummate liar, therefore not a good man. If Jesus was not who he said he was, he was a horrible charlatan. And Paul would have been right, or Saul would have been right to go after Christians. But as Saul's about to find out, Jesus was who he said he was. Paul thought, though, the, I keep calling him Paul, Saul at this point, thought that the sooner this cult was eliminated, the better. It's interesting that he said, in awe, in uh, Philippians two eight, Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Before he was saved, it was one of his biggest hurdles. After he was saved, it was one of the things he was the most grateful for. And that's something he uh, had held it against Jesus before. But here, here we see Saul. He's breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples, of the Lord. This is the language of cruelty and violent hatred. It's the language of a man uh, with a vicious passion in his actions. He's after the Christians. It's hard to believe this will be the great apostle Paul. Shows us the great power of salvation. Amen? What he can do to change a person. All right, verse 2. They desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. If he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. Went to the Sanhedrin. Went to the high priest arrest warrants. That's essentially what he's getting here. <coughs> Damascus would be the first target. <coughs> There's a large Jewish community in Damascus. No doubt many of them were Palestinian Jews that were fleeing there because of persecution. It's interesting to note how Christianity is described here. He calls it, if, if there are any of the way, of this way. That's a term that comes from the way. That's what they were uh, referred to. We see this term over five times in Acts, and it seems to be the early description of the Christians. By the way, you ever notice the apostles did not refer to each other as Christians? Christians was a derogatory term back then, Uh, but they called each other of the way. Now, where did that come from? Possibly from John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, amen? And they were part of that way. So that's what he's referring to here, of this way. So I'm sure this made Paul a celebrity in the Sanhedrin crowd. And uh, the authority and the clout he needed, uh, they readily gave him. So as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Damascus is considered one of the oldest cities in the world. There's already in place when Abraham was around. And it's always been hostile to Israelites. Under the Romans, Damascus continued to be an important city. And uh, as soon as he received the papers that he needed, he and his armed band headed north. From Jerusalem to Damascus, it's about 200 miles. All the while, it's just steaming. Anger is building towards the Christians. I wonder if during this time, Stephen's words were echoing back and forth in his head. The Bible, Jesus referred to the fact that he was under conviction. So somehow, his heart was already being prepared. I wonder if he tried to drown it out, the inner battle that's going on in his soul wonder if he just drowned it out. We know he's putting action here, but he was going to barrel forward anyway. At last, the Bible says he came near Damascus. He was determined to bring devastation to the believers in that city. If he had any doubts, he suppressed them. He was on his way. Now, question. Would you have witnessed to this man? Saul. You would not have witnessed to him because you'd have probably had your head chopped off. You wouldn't have tried to reason with him. But there was one that was doing a work in his heart. Someone with, <laughs> with nail prints in his hands. He was doing the work. He's about to do a miracle. Really, if you consider the change in this human heart, it was probably as great a miracle as parting the Red Sea. It was as big a miracle as closing the mouth of lions, as calming the storm, as raising the daughter of Jairus. This was a miracle, and it always is a miracle when God changes the human heart. Consider along with me, that the changing of a heart is something that you cannot undertake. I have a child. I'd love to change your heart. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do either to change someone's heart. You might have a husband or a wife. You'd love to change your heart. You can't do it. You cannot. You cannot. You do not have the power to change someone's heart. But God was doing a work here. We can give the gospel, but we cannot convert sinners. We can raise a child and instill in them the truth and instruction, but in the end we cannot control a heart. If someone is bound to be a certain way, we cannot change that. But God can. The Bible says in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Now what happens next, again I say, is nothing short of a miracle. Only God could save a man like Paul. And it turns out that's exactly what God did. Acts 8, 1-3 tells us that Paul was going from house to house. He was doing sort of a reverse, reverse evangelism. Instead of trying to bring them to Christianity, he would knock on the door, ask them if they're a Christian, or find out, or investigate, and if they were, he'd drag them out of their homes and put them in prison. His heart was full of murderous rage. He approved the stoning of Stephen. He was a religious fanatic, would stop at nothing. It's hard to imagine a more hopeless case. Now, question. Why even bother praying for a man like that? He's, he's never going to get saved. Why even worry about... I, I do wonder. I wonder if there were any Christians in the early church praying for Saul. I mean, you've got to remember, again, this is, not, this is not one of those governors you're unhappy about. This is Osama bin Laden. This is a man that wants to kill you. I wonder if anybody was praying for him. We tend to not pray for people we think are beyond help. And Saul shows us no one is beyond help. We heard about North Korea today. I wonder I I got to be honest, I don't think I've ever prayed for their dictator's salvation. Even he is not beyond help. He if what's his name Kim Jong-su Fung whatever uh, if, if, he, uh, if he got saved, it would be no greater miracle than Paul, Saul getting saved. Amen? So he was. Uh, we need to not let ourselves get caught up into labeling people no chance because Saul would have been on top of that list. How do you get the anti-Jesus poster child to become a Jesus follower? Are you going to debate him? He'd have out-debated you any day of the week. You're going to argue the Bible? He knew more. He had more of the Bible memorized uh, than uh, the first five books of the Bible he had memorized, at least. Threaten him? Saul had the full authority of the Romans and Jews behind him, the Jewish leaders. You're not going to be able to get away by threatening him. So this is the last guy on the planet you would ever think would be a convert and be a follower of Jesus. He was on a collision course with eternal judgment. What he desperately needed was a strong dose of divine intervention, and God did just that. What I'm trying to encourage you tonight is we probably all have family, friends who are not saved, who are, who are away from the Lord. I want to encourage you that God can do a work in their heart long distance. You don't have to be there, and when you can do nothing about it, God can still do a work in their heart. He did in Saul, of all people prepared his heart for this. So God can do the impossible. God, in fact, delights in the impossible. He can soften the hardest heart. He can touch anyone, anywhere, anytime. Never, ever count God out. We shouldn't hear. He was about to awaken this dead heart to the saving power of the gospel. Maybe there's someone here that's been praying for a loved one for years. Years seems no closer to the Lord than when you started praying for Him. Seems maybe they're even worse or further away. You don't know what God's doing though. You don't know what God's doing in their heart. You don't know what God's bringing into their life. You don't know what God's doing on the inside. We don't know. Just keep praying. You just be faithful. Galatians 6, 9, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if we faint not. The Lord uses events in our life. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses the Bible. He uses other people. He uses circumstances. But he can get uh, to someone's heart. So you just keep praying, keep believing. Trust God for your unsaved family. Trust God for uh, people that you're praying for away from the Lord. Uh, When you and they, least expected, they could be hit with a big light in the road, just like Saul was here. When the Bible says, and suddenly they're shown round about him, a light from heaven. God intervened. I like when you see an impossible situation and then have the words, but God. And, so, and uh, Paul said it himself years later in Galatians 1.15, but when it pleased God who called me by His grace. He, he, he said, I was an absolute religious nut fanatic, but God. I like when God gets involved. This is always the beginning stage of someone's salvation. Illumination. God will illuminate our path. In giving his testimony later, chapter twenty-two, verse six, Paul tells us that this was the noon at the noonday, right at noon or the middle of the day. Uh, so the noonday sun, it might have been bright, but it was outshined by this light here, and this light that blinded and dazed Saul. The expression shined round about, I can't even say the word really, stropato. It means to flash around. What this was, and I'm not trying to be glib about it, but this was a heavenly strobe light. That's what this was, to flash around. And it would shock and uh, awe anyone who saw it. Saul had no doubt where this light came from, came from heaven. It was about to penetrate his darkened soul. Next week, we'll start with verse number four and uh, talk about uh, his conversion and how uh, he responded and what the Lord did here, but what a blessing to see that God can take an impossible case. He can do the work in the heart. We just got to trust Him for it. Don't stop praying for that impossible. We, ought to, we really ought to have an impossible list. We ought to have an impossible a list of what we feel is impossible people and still pray for them and trust God to do a work in their heart. We really don't know what God's doing in hearts. We just got to be faithful and giving the message, Amen. And uh, we see even Saul uh, was God was able to do a work in his heart, and he was about as impossible of the case as you could get. So let us be faithful, Father. Thank you for the.